Are you dreaming about financial freedom? You know, living a carefree lifestyle where you do what you love without constantly freaking out about your money situation because you have a steady, stress-free stream of passive income. Well, that's where property investment comes in. If you've ever felt completely overwhelmed by the process involved and been scared of making the wrong decisions, then this episode is for you. I'm joined by my guest, Rusty Wahab from Get Rare Properties, who is a wealth of knowledge, pardon the pun, on this subject. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Marketing and Me podcast. If you're eager to grow your health and wellness business via effective marketing methods while maintaining your own health and wellness, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Leanne Shelton, a health and wellness copywriter and content marketing trainer who's here to help perfect your message, then find the right channels to send it out into the online world with the ultimate goal of making it heard and seen by your ideal client. So feel free to book in a free 15-minute chat with me after listening to today's episode. The details are in the show notes. And today, I'm joined by my guest, Rusty Webhav. Welcome, Rusty. Thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me here today. Good to have you here. So we met through BX, like many of my guests, and uh, and he, yeah, Rusty approached me saying, yep, Let's let's get this happening. Uh, and I thought, well, yeah, it's actually a really good topic all about, you know, making your hard-earned money work harder for you because that's what we're doing. We're working really hard. We're making money. But are you then making the right money choices to then hopefully achieve that financial freedom? Uh, so I'll just read out uh, Rusty's bio and then we'll get into the questions. So Rusty is a licensed buyer's agent, property expert, and long-term property investor who specializes in helping home buyers and investors buy the right property at the right place for the right price. He's an architect turned fund manager where he has managed money, $2 billion plus, working with top banks. He built his positively geared property portfolio in a short span of seven years without compromising his lifestyle. And his financial freedom allowed him to pursue his passion for helping others. So he founded Get Rare Properties, an independent buyer's agency to achieve that. All very cool. Uh, So, Rusty, please share a little bit more about your business journey. How did you get to where you are today? Uh, Certainly. uh, Happy to share that. So there has been a lot of things that has gone in the past for me. Like I've actually switched careers and uh, backgrounds for quite a while. Like I started as an architect, moved into IT industry, and then as a fund manager where I manage that kind of money. But then meanwhile, I was investing in my own uh, property wealth, uh, I guess like building, building wealth via properties. And that was done very successfully from my side. And uh, lots of friends and family members approached me saying that, why don't you start this as a business so that I can we can start tapping into your expertise of investing in properties? And that's what got me started. Uh, the, the main trigger actually happened over um, in the seminar or rather the sort of, of Tony Robbins and his uh, flagship program by name of Unleash Your Power Within. And what he actually challenged all the audience was that, what's your core value? What you really are, do you stand for? And why you are not doing it today rather than postponing it? 
And out of that, out of that actually came out with the mindset that I should be designing and what I'm doing in a corporate world and help people because that has been my passion. And I started thinking about the ways that I should be able to offer my services, expertise of finding the right properties to the people out there. So that got me started with Get Rare Properties. Awesome. So how long ago was that? So that was in September 2019. So almost about two years, but it took me a while to get all the licensing and everything. So I started in February last year. So pretty young as a business, but I've been doing this for last 11 years or so. First for myself, then for my friends and family. Now a lot more from other client base that I have now. Very cool. So tell me, what is your definition of financial freedom? Because you mentioned that in your bio. So what's your definition? Sure. So financial freedom is, as it says, like freedom for the finances. Lots of people, they go to work because they have to go to work. They have to earn money. They have to earn a living. When we have a freedom of choice, what it means is that now we have a choice to go to work if we want to, rather than when we have to. So effectively, what it is saying is that when we have enough wealth or enough asset base that we can rely on, our secondary source of income is decent enough that my primary source of income as my job or business, what I'm currently doing, I don't really have to rely on it. I can live off my passive income, which actually essentially means that there's a freedom of choice, financial freedom. Lots of people get mistaken by that it's actually retirement, but I'm not really saying that. It's saying it's like I'm more than happy for other people to keep working for the thing that they enjoy, they, they really are passionate about, because society needs people working towards the growth. So financial freedom is just a concept that we don't have to work, but only when you want to. Yeah, it's basically finding a, like a job or starting a business that you ultimately love, and you can do that knowing that your finances are taken care of, rather than feeling you must stay in a job you don't like so much, but the money's really good. So you can then, you have that freedom to go, I choose to work here. And for me, you know, yes, money is an aspect of what I do, but it's the satisfaction that I am, sense of fulfillment that I've helped others, I've made a difference. So you can really focus on that, like you were saying with the Tony Robbins experience, really honing on that versus, frankly, like, oh, I have to oh, I have to stick in this job, which I hate because it's making good money for my family. And, and yes, yeah, so just know that the money is kind of chugging along in this passive source of income. Exactly right. And just adding on that, it's like loving what you do and doing what you love. And once you love what you do, there will never be a day that you will feel that you're working because you're just enjoying what you what you do actually that's actually one thing i i've had that mantra for a number of years i don't want to ever work a day in my life you know i want to love what i do and thankfully and another one was i want to have uh full-time work and part-time hours (laughs) and so i I have slowly (laughs) it's it's become more full-time work but still flexible so i've and i think because like i'm enjoying what i do i don't feel like it's work so it's Yeah, I do give myself the time off on the weekends and things and nights. Uh, Now, okay, so investment property, why should our listeners consider that as a form of passive income? Sure. Certainly, first of all, there are quite a few ways that one can think about investing and generating passive income. But in particular, I like properties, particularly in Australia, for the simple reason is that like A, properties has been very consistent in their performance, like because of the shortage of properties and the the growth uh, in population effectively saying that demand is there. And um, so it's just a consistent, slow performing asset class. So that's the the reason why we should be thinking about properties. 
Second thing, it's it's a long-term investment. So it's not really like any other investment like shares uh, market whereby, whereby we have to be always on top of things in property investing when we do the right, I guess, assessment of a property of the markets and we can go in, we can kind of a buy and forget kind of a thing. Uh, of course, the, the tenant is, of course, paying the rent and um, that takes care of the expenses around it and there's additional capital growth. And uh, the other aspect of particularly in about properties that suits very well, uh, as long as one can take the risk of illiquidity because transition costs are high and you don't really, as I said, it's a long-term investment. You should not be thinking about a short-term, like buying in now and selling it like in six months time. Uh, the thing is that you can leverage a lot. So all I have to have basically 20% or 10%, depending on whether you go with a 20% deposit or 10% deposit, we can have exposure of 100% of the property value. So if so, not six months. So when would you? Would it be something at least five years type thing, or what kind of time span are we talking? Yeah, so I would actually like to buy a property forever in the sense that because this is the kind of asset class that you don't really have to sell to book your profit. You can always go to the bank, ask for the revaluation. If the as the property value has gone up, you can go to the banker as a mortgage broker, and we can extract the value. Of, of the equity that we have generated in the property already. So as long as the property is working, it's long-term, it doesn't really make sense to sell it uh, to, to get the profit because we can always do that anyway. So you'd only, so, if it wasn't, like if some weird reason either gone down in value, it's like quickly, yeah, sell it ASAP or would you still say stick it out? Look, it, it's a great question, great question. The way I look at it, it, it really comes down to the reason why we have bought it at first place. If we have done the due diligence of buying the property and we have taken into account the long-term perspective or the call on the property purchase, I would say stick it all the way through because yes, it's a long-term, it will work. And of course, in short term, there might be blips up and down. It's a, it's a cyclical market. It comes down, it comes goes up as well. But in long run, typically, if you look at the fundamentals of the property investing, and if we look at the historical data, it has worked all the way provided we are buying the right property at the right place, not overpaying the type of the property and not speculating as well. As an example, lots of people had made mistakes in the past to go and buy mining towns and buy new properties. It goes, it does very well for some time before it just gets oversupplied. Um, and once the project is done, the miners or the population goes away from there and then there's a vacancy. Yes, at sometimes like if we have made that kind of a choices in the past, of course, it makes sense to cut the losses and think of it as an opportunity cost. Because if you sell that property, you can potentially buy elsewhere as well. So to me, it's, it's a very, I guess, uh, subjective question. Like when we sell it, what are we going to do next? And also depends on the property. Yes, there will be a moment or there will be small periods whereby that property is not really performing very well. But if we stay true to our process of research and finding the right property, it makes sense to stick it all the way for its investment horizon. Well, I mean, shares are the same, right? They're always going up and down. And it's just like, if you know that you made the right decision at the beginning, you just, you know, stay with it. And I guess that's where your role, you know, as buyer's agent, it's so important to really get it right at the start and not just hear, oh, I heard that there's a good opportunity. I'm just going to, yeah, go for it. Um, Actually, I wanted to ask you, because um, my husband and I, a couple of years ago, were looking at potentially investment property uh off the plans sure. what what do you think is it 
ideal off the plans before it's been built or an already built house maybe been around for a few years? First of all, Leander, there's not there's no wrong right or wrong answer. It really comes down to the personal circumstances and also the end goal that we are chasing, along with the fact that everything, especially the investments and that for property investing, carries an element of risk. So we have to map it out, like whether the risk that we are taking is very well compensated or rewarded uh, as an investor for yourself. So it, now there are a few elements of risk that an investor can take and some, some risk that you should not be taking as an investor. Now, if I have to compare everything being equal, I'm a big fan of existing market properties where they are in well-established area. Typically what happens with the off the plan, first of all, we are buying a new property as an investment. That means it's equivalent to buying a new car to use it as a taxi, right? Over the period of time, it will lose its shine. It will lose its appeal. So the property that we are buying today, paying the premium for its new appeal or as in the appeal for the new property with the nice smell and whatnot. Um, yes, there will be a slightly higher rental uh, uh, money that we can collect. It has its associated depreciation benefit as well. So there are quite a few pros in, in the favor of buying and of the land property. It's much easier transition to get into. All you have to do is basically sign a piece of contract. Now buying, a, on the other hand, like buying any ex- existing property, there's a few things that we really need to take into account. A, how do we go about finding them? Because the properties, they're just all over the place. We don't know what to look for, where to look for, and how to go. How do we go about negotiating them for them? So coming about the reasons why I will be preferring existing market properties is that A, we can add value. In a new property, you can't really do much. It's already it's full price or maybe beyond. In an existing property, the property can be very unique. We can add value by way of renovation or doing some structural renovation. Because those properties are unique. Now, the, the, the challenge with the off-the-plan properties, A, we are taking a lot of risk with regards to its development. We have heard so many scenarios where the developers doesn't really do the or deliver <laughs> do the project job. on time or the yeah. quality, the timing as well. Then also the biggest challenge with regards to the risk of off-the-plan property is that it's not really a regulated market. So anyone can sell those properties and they're not really taking sometimes not taking care of the end client, like what they are buying and why they are buying. So, so there's one has to be very careful, like when somebody's trying to sell them of the plant property, like whose interests are they serving? Is it the client at the buyer or the seller or themselves? So, so there are quite a few elements there. Um, uh, the other thing I would say is that when we are buying the of the plant property, we have to be really sure that we have decent inbuilt buffer because by the time it is completed, A, yes, we are taking the risk of the development or the quality of the build, but also the market valuation. Because when you're buying in a market, when, when it is about to be built, this is one market, but what if the market dips and then later on, after one year, when we are going to the bank for refinancing or, or financing for the property, the banker might say the value doesn't stack up. So we have seen in the past that there has been a shortfall that the buyer has to come up with. Lots of people in the debt, like they, they struggle. And the thing is that the purchase is unconditional. Like even if you have paid 10% for her, for putting uh, or buying that property, you are still forced to buy the whole lot once it becomes unconditional. So to me, it's more about risk and reward. There are too much of too many risk, but not enough reward for that. But yes, it's very simple to get into off the plan property. 
Yeah, no, thank you. That's, that's, yeah, a lot to think about. It's good. Because I think as well, you know, a, a property is only worth as much as someone pays for it. And that's where you have the risk for the off the plan. If no one's ever paid for those places before, you just don't know, yeah, what, what the market, what's worth. Uh, whereas if you are buying an existing prop, uh, sorry, investing in an existing property, you can look at the history of the sale price and things like that and know, okay, it is going up and, uh, and, and roughly do some research in the area and you probably have a better idea of the value and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you next question is how does someone know they're in the right position to invest in property? So do they have to have a minimum amount of money in the bank or have a, a minimum amount of income? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, great question, Leanne. Great question. So I think it comes down to the will in terms of like what they really want to achieve because they might not be ready today, but if there's a will that they need to deposit this much money for them to get into the ladder of investing, they can work towards it. So to me, I've always started with the end goal in mind, like what we are trying to achieve there. So even for someone who has money or no, doesn't really have money, the end goal is that, okay, they want to have a, a specific level of passive income. And how do we go about doing that? So it has given a lot, many people that I've talked to, gives them that kind of a framework that they, this is the amount of money that they should be saving to get there. Coming back to your question, specifically, we say, that when we are talking about investment property, it's always as a mathematically, financially, accounting perspective wise, it makes sense to pay LMI rather than saving all the way up to 20% deposit and then saving on LMI. And the reason I say that is that typically LMI, which is a lender's mortgage insurance, uh, which is applicable when you have a deposit of less than 20% of the purchase price, then the banks, the lender would like you to buy them the insurance that if something goes wrong, then the banks or the lender is covered for that. Now, typically the cost of LMI is about 2%. Now the choice as an investor has, either I save all the way up to 20% or I can save up to the 10% of the purchase price and maybe buy LMI, which costs about 2%. So typically, mathematically, it makes sense that to, for me to save all the way up to 10%, account for 2% LMI, then about 2% of stamp duty, plus some costs around it. So roughly, I've seen, depending on the purchase price, it's about 16 to 18% of the purchase price that I should have in my pocket. Not necessarily as a cash, it could be equity in the property itself. So as an example, if you're buying a property of about 500,000, with that numbers that I just talked about, 17% comes out to, comes out to be about 85,000. Now, $85,000 is all I need, taking into account all the costs associated to purchase a property. Now, that 85000 can be in my equity of the property. As in, like, if I bought up one property earlier and it has gone up in value, that is called equity, as in the money that I've actually made out there. And that is good enough, provided I can go to the bank, show my salary slip or my bank's number, as in, like, uh, my business numbers, that how much money I'm making, so that the mortgage broker or the bank can work out whether I can service that kind of loan because I still need to take a loan of about $450,000. And um, the fact that it's an investment property, I'll be putting some tenants in that property and I'll be collecting some rent. So in terms of the serviceability of the, or, or the, the, the operations of the property as in holding cost, it's pretty much neutral at that kind of level that the rent that I'm collecting uh, pays off the mortgage repayments. So the challenge is to bring up that 17% of the purchase price, which is, Again, might not be there today. It might eventually come out 
um, in, in terms of the planning, if I work it out, like if, I have to, if I'm saving about say 5,000 per month, then probably it takes that long to get there. So, so what I really am a big fan of is working towards the end goal in mind. And that serves as a purpose to do things that I should be doing today. Yeah, fantastic. So, it, it, I mean, there could also be, a, I mean, thinking about how expensive property in Sydney in particular, uh, you know, invest in a property that eventually your children could live in because they couldn't otherwise, you know, um, have it. And so, like, I just want to get a few more examples from you of why people come to you, why they invest in property. Sure. So before, before you, you touched base upon a point that they, like people in Sydney would like to buy a property for the children or even for themselves. Uh, I would like to just add some comments on that, if that's okay, Leanne. Sure. So when we are talking about investment property, we should be thinking very rationally, very objectively. And the purpose of the investment property is only as an investment. Now, investment is about making money from our investments. And of course, any investment comes with the rewards as an expected return that we can make, along with the underlying risks that we are taking. Now, if we restrict ourselves to buy within Sydney Metropolitan, we might be limited by the choices in terms of the price of the property, in terms of the type of the property, and also in terms of the market cycle that we are in. But if you are thinking purely as an investor, money is money. Risk and rewards are still the same. Now, I would think that we should be thinking more broadly and think of the market, which is in the booming stage, whereby it's more likely to grow up in terms of value and as a there should be a research element around it to figure out which metropolitan or which regional area should I be buying with that kind of budget that we should be able to afford. So I'll be thinking that investment investment, Australia-wide rules are pretty much the same. The loan lending criteria is pretty much the same. So let's make a rational decision and find the property which suits our purposes more than any other thing. Thinking about passing it on as a legacy to the kids they might or might not like the property anyway to live for themselves, but we can always sell it later on and get them the cash or replace the property or the security that they really want to live in. So that would be the kind of thinking I would have because right now the purpose is to make money out of it. So now coming back to the second part of the question, like why one should be thinking of working with a buyer's agent. And it's precisely that, that as a buyer's agent, we can work out objectively what the clients are looking for specifically what the criteria is, what is their risk appetite is, what are the circumstances. And more importantly, Leanne, the whole thing is a very specialized role. Like we are we are talking about a big amount of money. Yes, it's about it takes about 8,500K as an example for a five, up to $500,000 property, but we are talking about a big loan as well. So there's a debt that we have to carry. So one has to be very comfortable with the kind of investment we are making. It's a big amount. The, the, it comes with a uh, debt obligation as well. So we really want to make sure that we are making the right decision, buying the right property that grows in value as well. Especially when it is a long term, a percent here or there in terms of the growth rate expected will have a huge impact over the long period of time, something called compounding effect. So uh, an independent bias agent who has been specialized, has been an expert in doing this on a regular basis, knows the tricks and, 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 and the rules of the game, knows how to find the right property, and get the bargain in the market as well. So th- those are the kind of benefits that our typical buyers agents bring. And it's not really a do-it-yourself kind of project because of the stake that is involved here. 
Yeah, and that, that's a perfect segue to the next question I had for you, which was uh, like, what are the key things to keep in mind when it comes to choosing the right place? So, like you were before, just saying about you know Australia wide, is it better to actually go interstate and look at properties in a state uh, versus your own city, especially if it's somewhere quite expensive like Sydney? Um, are there any other things like apartments versus standalone properties, that type of thing? Sure. There are a lot of questions out there. I'll, I'll yes. probably try to take <laughs> one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, there's no right or wrong answer. It To me, it is all very subjective. Subjective to the individual who's trying to buy the already existing portfolio they might have in terms of the properties that they might have, the kind of uh, savings rate they have, the risk appetite they have, and also what is the projected future goal is. Because... There's, there's a differences in all sort of things. Like the best thing about Australian market is that it's not one market. It's a very heterogeneous market, as in like there are mark, markets within the markets. So the best thing that we should be thinking about doing is that, that not only chasing the growth or finding those markets which are very stable and are expected to grow, we should also be thinking that if I have a type of property already in my portfolio, what is the other non-synchronized market that doesn't go hand in hand with the property that I already have uh, the, the, the property so they're right? competing so, not competing against each other or something yeah so basically what it means is that like it's an asynchronous market as in the, the correlation is low so if one goes up other probably or other i should rather say the other way around if one property market is going down then other one is holding it itself nicely and maybe going up so as a combination of the properties that we are having it's still probably a smoother line because lots of people make a mistake of buying in their neighborhood. And it's probably not the right thing as a strategy because in the good years, both properties might go do very well, but the, the short period when that market is not doing good, both properties are tanking down. And, and that is the thing that I was talking about. There's a risk element to it. I personally would like to go and have a steady, slow growth compared to you know, a very volatile up and down market because down market will actually push me out of the market. And um, also the other aspect is that if I don't have that kind of profile, then the bankers might not lend me money for the third one that I have to go for. So coming back to your question, it starts with the goal setting, understanding the strategy, like how many properties we should be building as a part of the portfolio. Because the fact is that 72% of property investors have only one property. Other 18% have two properties under their belt. So effectively, yes, Australian market is pretty primed for property investing. And we have seen a lot of successes, people making a lot of money out of property investing. Yet 90% of property investors do not go beyond one or two properties. And the fact behind that is that they don't really follow a strategy. There are so many myths. There are so many mistakes that people make. And most of them follow the herd. and they get in the trap of like following their friends and colleagues, what they have been doing. And, uh, and that's where the rational, like rational or objective research comes into play. And as I said, there's no right or wrong answer, city versus regional, unit versus house. It really depends on the end goal. Typically for someone who's starting afresh and have some equity or cash in their pocket and they want to build a portfolio, I'll be everything being equal. I would be more tilted towards buying a property which has a bit of cap capital growth component more towards it rather than thinking of having a cash flow because eventually when a capital growth oriented property will grow in value 
that's where we make money. Cash flow is more of a byproduct or a secondary benefit rather than the primary objective. But in the journey of investing, we really need to focus on cash flow at some stage because that affects sooner or later affects our borrowing capacity. So the cash or, flow you mean is in like paying rent? Is that what you kind of mean with the cash flow coming in? Yeah. So by when I say cash flow, I'm referring to the net incomings or outgoings after having a property. So you know, like there will be some expenses around it, like my mortgage interest repayments or fees to the property manager and the other expenses. So these are my outgoings, but then I'm also collecting rent from my tenant. So so that's incoming. So as a net effect, if it is zero, we call it as a neutral cash flow. But if I'm paying more from my pocket, that it becomes negative cash flow. So just by this definition, lots of people choose to go for positive cash flow. Nothing wrong with that. But the challenge is that positive cash flow comes at the cost of marginal capital growth. So it's a more of a balance. Like I can, if I choose to go for a capital growth oriented property, that means I'm looking for its value to grow more relatively than I'm actually letting go the cash flow out of it. So as an example, unit typically is set to have a higher cash flow. Again, everything being equal uh, compared to a house, which is a landed property, might have a better chances of capital growth, everything being equal. Um, and But then it would have um, a slightly higher capital growth expectations. So whether I do choose between a unit or a house, as an example, will be more of a function of the research or take into account the scenarios that should you as an investor be more inclined towards capital growth or more inclined towards cash flow. If that right. makes sense. Yes, I'm with you. So yeah, it sounds like you definitely need to have a buyer's agent to do all that stuff. Cause I, yeah, I'm so not a numbers person. That stuff is like, okay, I need to trust someone like yourself <laughs> to, to just tell me how it all works. Uh, so like with, so with the, what's the process like? So you've said, obviously you sit down with them and you talk about the ultimate goal. What is the next process and how much involvement do you need from like from me as a potential investor? Uh, do you just have a couple of conversations? Do you then say, here's some properties I recommend? What's the process look like? Sure. I, I think I should clarify. Like I, I think I'm from my conversation to you so far, I have been talking about two different things. One is as a more as a property stra- property strategist mm-hmm. and the other being buyer's agent. So if I just talk very quickly about buyer's agent, their role is to basically find the property which suits the buyer's mandate. So lots of people are very clear what exactly they're looking for. So that's the mandate that buyer's agent will be given. Then the buyer's agent job is to do the research and find that property that suits the mandate. However, lots of people have no clue what to look for and how exactly what it should be looking like is a role of a property strategist. So things that I have been just talking about, what you should be looking at is a role of a strategist to work together with you. Now, the good thing in my business as a buyer's advocacy, I'm actually doing a role of a property strategist first. That basically takes into account all the circumstances, your limitations, your aspirations. And then having been done this multiple times, have built the process, have know the, I guess, the nitty gritty of working it out. And that process will spit out together um, as a mandate for the buyer's agent to work on. So effectively, if somebody comes to you, comes to me, as an example, if you come to me and say that, Rusty, let's find the property, I'll be talking to you, okay, what exactly are you looking for in a property? Um, And so there might be an underlying objective you might have, you know, you might say that, look, I would like to build wealth or I would like to have cash flow. 
So we'll go into the bottom of it and then we'll try to work it out numerically what exactly that looks like. Also, take into account what's your borrowing capacity is, how much money you have, if like, you know, depending on the number that you have. So for example, if you have a million dollar to invest in, the question becomes, should we buy one property of a million dollar or should we buy two properties of 500,000? Just only as an example. So all of that we take into account and then we, we agree upon as a strategy sessions outcome that this is what we are looking for. And then, then that's when I will wear a hat of buyer's agent, take that mandate and then do the research. Now, in our process, it's a very hand-holding, more of a consultant's approach as a, as, 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 a, uh, as a consultant, as a friend, as a coach, rather than a service provider. So what it means is that I'll be working with you, for you, for your benefit. What I'll be bringing from my side is the research and what I'll be getting or expecting from you is your preferences and your long-term goals planning that we just did in the strategy sessions. So together, we'll work it out and then we make decision on the, on the location. So I know you asked that question about location. So for us, it's all about demand and supply. When we are buying something, we are buying it for two reasons, either cash flow or capital growth. So now both of these things are dependent on that how many people would like to live in the type of property that you're just about to buy. Now, supply and demand actually says that if there are more people looking for a property to live in or rent, the price, sales price or the rent will go up because there are limited number of properties in that area. So, so that is the thing that we'll take into account. Now we are talking about Australia-wide uh, investing. So we really re- rely a lot on the data and uh, the network that we have uh, of, of, of the agents who will actually supply us the local data and know-how and the feel of the market. Once you cover that location-wise research, then we'll go and find the property meeting the criteria. And the benefit that we have is that, as I was saying before, like we have a deep network of uh, real estate agents, and that also includes the sales agents who happen to work together with us for, for a mutual benefit because we bring a qualified buyer, they bring a property and the seller. And when we have a handshake, it actually has to work for both ways as a win-win. Um, and most of the people think that it's all about price. So that might be the case for the selling agent or the seller. For us, it's also about finding the right property. So once we find that, then it's also the other terms and conditions. Like lots of sellers who are distressed sellers, for them, price is a secondary objective. The prime objective is to get the deal done immediately. And that's when we bring a lot of value or lots of bargain in our expertise that the deal happens or goes through because we are bringing them a qualified buyer and, and we pick the property at our maybe 90 cents in a dollar kind of a thing. So that's a bargain that we bring. And then again, we just when we did do the negotiation, we bring it back to the, to the buyer. We discuss it again, whether it is good enough purchase for us. If it is yes, then we'll proceed. But now we do appreciate it's, it's a process of acquisition, which is all very cumbersome. We have to engage lots of other professionals like building and pest inspectors, solicitors, and we take care of all of that because we do appreciate that people are busy or might not know the real know-how or the tricks of the trade. So we help them through. And then that actually uh, concludes the buying process of the property. But then we provide other support beyond that, which is basically selection of the property manager, looking after their um, the tenant selection and, and other process around it if, if they are happy to continue the journey. For us, it's all about relationship. So we are never transactional. Like It's not like we are just buying our property and then our job is done. Our job is 
basically help them to build the portfolio. Yeah, so it sounds like it's all very thorough. It is great that it's not just a yeah, transactional thing. I'm, I'm not really, I don't really like that approach with any type of business actually where it's just that one-off thing. But yeah, it sounds like you ultimately do care with them every step of the way and someone like myself where it's, I'm very naive about the whole thing, that hand-holding thing, uh, it must be very valuable for your clients. You must have really, really um, great feedback. No, exactly right. Like, and we take pride in what we are doing uh, because we know that uh, people out there are very busy. They have heard lots of success stories as well as some horror stories that actually put them on the back foot. And um, finding a property is a very sophisticated, very, I guess, specialized role. And it needs a lot of effort by the people to find the right property. Now, because they are busy, they the the easiest choice is to basically postpone the idea or do not act on the property market. So either they make mistakes if they don't really do the due diligence or they don't do anything. And, and, and yeah, obviously we prefer not to make some mistakes. So <laughs> get someone like Rusty to help you out and then, yeah, make the right choices right at the beginning. Uh, but, yeah, thank you so much. This has been really great. Uh, now I have, uh, well, I have a new regular question actually to ask, and that is uh, what's the best marketing method for your type of business? My best marketing method is basically word of mouth and referrals effectively. Uh, and the simple reason is that because we we have worked out very well as a process that what we should be doing and we are able to produce the results. And um, I do run some workshops as well because I'm very much focused on the education side of things. And uh, lots of people sign up for this workshop. They really see the value of working with a buyer's agent. Some of this concept is not really very popular in Australia compared to other parts of the world. Uh, but people, when they really see what an independent buyer's agent can bring, uh, to them, uh, that is actually serving us very well. So it's education, uh, whether in terms of the workshops or the articles on LinkedIn or Facebook that I, we, we write as a team, and that is serving us very well as a word of mouth marketing, as well as the referrals from, or even the repeat clients that we get, because it's all about building portfolio. So in summary, it's social media and the workshops plus word of mouth. Fantastic. And how do you take care of your health and wellness, Rusty? Now, great question. I'm very much passionate about the well-being at all levels and uh, physical health, along with you know spiritual and financial, all of that. But I believe that you're referring to uh, health as in a physical health here. And uh, to me, like I, a, first of all, with the physical body, it comes down to the mindset and the mind. Like if we have, if we feed our mind with the positive thoughts, typically the body would actually, I mean, it's, it's it's a two-way street. If our body feels good, our mind also feels good. If other way around as well. So meditation actually helps me a fair bit on a daily basis. Then I go for a walk, sometimes run of half an hour each um, as, as, a, as an episode and with my with my Audible uh, books uh, plugged in. So kind of a good environment for me, uh, like pumping up with my adrenaline as well as uh, getting the right thoughts. So yeah, and eating, eating well, um, having plenty of water as a rule and just just monitoring how things are going. Sounds great. And uh, how can people connect with you? Sure. So social media, um, I got on my website, www.getrare.com.au. Uh, uh, I do run workshops. Uh, otherwise, like I can be reached at my email ID, um, rusty at getrare.com.au. And yeah. 
And I'll put all that in the show notes. But yeah, so thank you so much, Rusty. This is really great, valuable information today. So if anyone's been thinking about investment property, yes, number one rule is don't do it alone (laughs) unless you want to make those mistakes and learn from them later. Uh, And yeah, thank you very much for your time today, Rusty. You've been great. No, thank you so much. Thank you. you. And thank you to the snuffer tuning in. You can find the show notes for the episode at marketingandme.com.au. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and leave me a rating or review via iTunes and grab a screenshot of this episode and share it across your socials. If you're interested in connecting with me, feel free to reach out via LinkedIn. Just search for Leanne Shelton and let me know you're a fan of the show. And you can also find me on Instagram under Leanne Shelton 247 or book in a free 15 minute chat because I'd absolutely love to chat about how I can help you grow a thriving health and wellness business. Until next time, I wish you good health and good wealth.